when the Fed did its pivot last week, when it seemed to act a little bit more dovish than everybody expected, one wonders how much they factored the China reopening into the story. Because increasingly, this story seems to be a bit of a what shall we call it? A bit of a a bit of an unknown variable in our whole model of what is happening out there. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think this out. And then you look geopolitically. Russia has finally formally announced that it is going to reduce the amount of oil that it is shipping, which seems to be a direct response to the sanctions. So you put that, which seems to be an active attempt to stoke inflation as a strategy, right? I mean, it couldn't be more clear, could it? I mean, they're not making a secret about it. But then you put the China reopening into the mix, which will, of course, increase demand. One wonders what the Fed is doing by not retaining its ultra-uber-hawkish perch. So it's quite interesting. I mean, at the back of your head, you wonder to yourself, have they seen data that looks so terrible that is coming that they are just going, okay, no matter how much we want to reduce inflation and demand, there is such troubling data in the pipeline. As they say, monetary policy has delayed reaction or however they put it, right? And that is what Jay Powell was saying. So it's quite the bind one wonders that the West could be in. And I mean, the pendulum so far is in the West's direction. So far, the West was completely bailed out by Mother Nature here, at least with the very warm winter in Europe, historically warm. So, so far, things have worked out to the West, but you kind of feel like the pendulum, you know, as you see the markets there, you know, with Bitcoin, you know, right at $25,000, maybe it can go a little higher to thirty. You know, maybe it keeps going. I mean, nobody knows the future, and it's almost a fool's errand to attempt to predict the future. But, I mean, we have to do some outlooks and forecasts as in this business. That is the nature of investing. Otherwise, it really is just blind chance, isn't it? But all to say, you know, at least from my perspective, it kind of feels like the pendulum is caught in midair, you know, at its height. Maybe it goes slightly higher and is ready to just go in the opposite direction. But who knows? Maybe this is just a overly pessimistic view. But as we're going to hear from Global X ETF commodities analyst Roberta Caselli in this week's episode, there is definitely a tightness in the market. And I mean, some of the things that Roberta was saying about copper are quite stunning. And zinc, I didn't realize. I mean, remember the Javier Blas's book, The World for Sale, where the traders in there were calling aluminum congealed electricity. Well, Roberta was saying that zinc as well is one of those metals that are incredibly energy intensive. And she was suggesting that part of the reason for the stories that we saw a week or two ago with this kind of strange activity on 24-hour zinc with prices going really high, 
maybe suggesting that this is a result of these smelters that have been closing across Europe. And so anyways, it's a very interesting discussion with Roberta Caselli, again, of Global X ETFs, a commodities analyst. So that is a lot to look forward to. And as I was saying with Roberta, as you'll hear, I mean, the whole idea in Europe of, you know, the weekend vacation is starting to evaporate. For the last perhaps 15 years, I've only been here for six and a half, but for the last, I'm assuming somewhere around 15 years or so, the era of cheap air travel in Europe, the idea of going to, you know, Milan for two days, two nights, and flying back to Berlin was not a crazy idea. You might be able to do it for 100 euros. That seems to be disappearing. That whole, you know, cheap travel around Europe, I mean, everybody notices it. And not only is it in the airfare, but it is in the Airbnbs as well. So, you know, inflation, I mean, how does it hit people? Well, you know, maybe there also seems to be delays and legs in inflation itself. We were talking about the delays and legs in monetary policy. What about the delays and legs in inflation? Because sure, in the grocery store, you might see it first. But something like Airbnb, that's kind of a cultural thing that happens over, you know, months. It takes months, maybe a year to really start to see the effect. And I think that's true for a lot of things. Like, you know, I haven't looked for air travel that much here and there, but all of a sudden it's just like, this is expensive. And part of the reason for it, and again, this wild card in our big geopolitical mosaic, this narrative mosaic, is China and the China reopening. And from a purely geopolitical point of view, maybe you have to wonder that factored into President Xi's decision to just say, forget it, let's open up, let's stoke inflation in the West, let's, you know, we're having problems here at home anyway. People are getting mad. Let's just, you know, open up and create some demand here and we'll print a bunch of money. We'll have a, we'll put a bunch of liquidity into the system. So anyways, a lot going on here as always. And again, metals and mining increasingly are at the center of this geopolitical Mandela that we love to track here. So welcome back, everyone. It's going to be a wonderful show. And if you aren't getting enough from the podcast and the website, you can also attend one of our virtual mining and investment conferences. This takes place tomorrow, the Global Mining Symposium on February 22nd. It is free. You can register your interest, which should get you in at events.northernminer.com. It features Catherine Boggs, chairperson of Hecla Mining, Luca Giacovazzi, CEO of Wailu Metals, and Randy Smallwood, president and CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals, and also chairman of the board of the World Gold Council. So uh, all-star lineup. We have a series of presenters as well, including Kendra Johnston from AME Roundup and several more. It's going to be a great show. So just go to events.northernminer.com to participate. And you have the possibility of asking any of these guests a question while you are watching. So that is very exciting. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer and on Instagram at the northernminer and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, 
and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, BHP is hoping green shoots in China will help its profits as last year they slumped. Pretty amazing. This is a Reuters article via mining.com. Global miner BHP Group reported a steeper than expected 32% fall in first half profit owing to a drop in iron ore prices, sending its shares down, although it flagged a brightening outlook in China, its biggest customer. So maybe that was the COVID lockdowns in China, because you would have thought last year, I assume when they say first half, they're talking about last year, you would have thought they would have been doing spectacularly. Continuing on, China's strict zero COVID-19 policy curtailed economic activities and dented demand over the past year, driving iron ore prices down from lofty levels while miners wrestled with surging cost and a tight domestic labor market. Well, that is a very good point, surging costs. And we're going to have another very interesting story, Eric Gold's Mark Brisso on how inflation costs are not coming down. As a result, the world's largest listed miner reported underlying profit attributable from continuing operations of $6.6 billion, down from $9.72 billion a year earlier, more than $3 billion less in profit. That is quite something and a testament to inflation, isn't it? To costs of mining. That missed a VUMA financial estimate of $6.82 billion as earnings from copper and coal came in lower than analysts had expected. BHP's giant Escondida copper mine was hit by road blockades in Chile that disrupted mining supply deliveries. However, its interim dividend of $0.90 per share, while down 40%, beat VUMA financial's estimate of $0.88. You know, I was looking... Let me see if I can find that. I was on Google Finance, and here it is. You know, even still, like BHP is at $48. You look at the big chart here, and the highest it went, like, was in 2022 at, like, maybe $52 and 53 in 2021. And those are basically the all-time highs. So it's at $48, not far from its all-time high. And you know what the dividend yield is? 9.59%. So... That is quite something. And I mean, this is a minor. It's really interesting. You wonder. I mean, it looks like it actually just did a double top there, but I am not a technician uh, in the last few years. And yeah, it's going to be, you know, as always, these markets always seem to be at an inflection point of some kind. And yeah, should these highs be broken, that could get pretty crazy in a good way for investors, not financial advice, of course. Shares of the global miner fell as much as 2.8% to $47.11 Australian, their lowest since January 6th, and were down 2% in a broader market that was down half a percent. And we have a quote from analyst David Lennox of Wealth Manager Fat Profits in Sydney, quote, we have got BHP as a hold primarily because their share price is sitting up at record highs and they're going to have to do pretty well to justify those levels. You know what I find so strange? And of course, I am not a mining stock analyst. When you look at the price to earnings, it's 8.32. I guess that's on the higher range of where it's been previously. I mean, I remember we were looking at mining stocks when it was like three or four, like on BHP, if memory serves. So they're considering those pretty high levels. According to David Lennox, the miner said it sees, quote, markedly higher 
and, quote, price floors for some commodities than prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, given the rising marginal cost of production. You know, remember Paul from the Sirius report, who really just emphasized the whole point that it's all about energy, right? And, you know, if your energy is high, everything else is going to be higher, including your metals. And it sounds like BHP is saying the exact same thing. And we have a quote from BHP, quote, the lag effect of inflation, and we were just talking about this, the lag effect of inflation and continued labor market tightness are expected to impact our cost base in the 2024 financial year, BHP said, as it logged a $1 billion inflation hit primarily from diesel costs for the half. So they talk about the lagging effects of monetary policy. I think there's something to be said about the lagging effects of inflation. Because now I get the sense that, you know, ironically, as the Fed seems to be pivoting or at least doing a a semi-pivot or a halting of the tightening, it feels like now is when the inflation is hitting from over here, you know, anecdotally. So continuing on, analysts at RBC Capital Markets said BHP's first half was, quote, surprisingly poor, but is a strong indicator of what is a still challenging inflationary environment for the miners, end quote. And again, you start to see the argument for the metals themselves in terms of an investment thesis, don't you? Because when you buy the metal, you're not worrying about the cost of energy for the miner. Okay, so, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. BHP also said it expected aggressive global interest rate hikes from last year to slow growth sharply across the developed world. Well, when did they say that? That was probably before Powell's press conference that they said that. I wonder what they think now. And then here we have China. However, after a difficult first half, the miner said China appears to be a source of stability for commodity demands as the world's second largest economy and top metals consumer reopens and looks to revive its debt-laden property sector. And this property sector idea is something that Roberta Caselli mentions. She highlights it. She starts with it, that the property sector in China, should it have a, you know, should it stop falling, which it seems like it has, according to her, that could mean a heck of a lot for commodities, particularly industrial metals. So here it's being mentioned again. And the reason I emphasize it is because we don't really often hear of China's property sector as playing this pivotal role. But the more I'm reading here, the more I'm seeing, okay, China's property sector, we need our eyes on that. BHP's confidence in China's economy was buoyed by green shoots it has seen since the start of the calendar year, including new loans, house prices, and business sentiment surveys, CEO Mike Henry said, quote, There's a lot there that has given us confidence that we'll see an acceleration in the Chinese domestic economy, he told reporters on a conference call. So pretty interesting. Again, following mining sometimes feels like you're on the pulse of inflation to a certain degree. Continuing on, China's supply concerns boost aluminum prices. This is also Reuters via mining.com. Aluminum prices climbed on Tuesday to their highest in more than a week on output cuts in China the rising inventories capped gains. Benchmark aluminum on the LME was up 0.6% at $2,472 a ton after touching its highest since February 10th at $2,485 per ton. China's Yunnan province has asked aluminum producers to reduce power consumption by 40 to 42% 
from September levels in the face of an ongoing supply crunch. So interesting. And again, we're talking about aluminum as congealed electricity. And we have a quote from Sukden financial analyst Jordy Wilkies. Quote, aluminum prices have been supported by the prospect of capacity curtailment in China due to power availability. This could see output cuts as seasonal demand starts to pick up in March. I mean, again, from a geopolitical perspective as well, rising aluminum prices cannot be good for inflation in the West. And increasingly, like, what is Russia and China going to do as far as if they want to damage the West and fight back? What are they going to do? Are they going to get out their military? Or are they going to do inflation where basically they can say, look, it's just the financial markets. It's not us. Right? I mean, isn't that what you would do? That's what I would do. And I mean, again, Russia seems to be overtly doing it with the curtailment of oil supply. So continuing on, analysts estimate output cuts at smelters in China since the middle of last year will cut supplies in the top consumer to less than 40 million tons by the end of February. Aluminum stocks in LME-registered warehouses have nearly doubled to 581,300 tons since February 6th. In warehouses monitored by the Shanghai Futures Exchange, aluminum inventories have jumped 360% since late December to 249,000 tons. On the technical front, support for aluminum comes from the 200-day moving average of around $2,245. I wish I asked Roberta about aluminum. There is simply too much to get through, but that would be fascinating. The next time she is on, we will have to do that. Continuing on, General Motors digs into mining business to lead race for EV metals. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. And it says here, General Motors is trying to speed ahead in the race for metals, underpinning the industry's shift to electric cars. The U.S. automaker is competing for a stake in Valet's base metal unit. Wow. Why is that not in the headline? They are competing for a stake in Valet's base metal unit. People familiar with the matter said this month. A deal may give GM access to the Brazilian mining giant's copper and nickel resources that are key to making EV batteries. That is quite something. GM is competing for a stake in Valet's base metal unit. I mean, that is quite something. GM has made several such wagers recently, buying equity while rivals mostly sign supply deals. Wow. Last month, it bought a $650 million stake in Lithium Americas to help develop Nevada's Thacker Pass mine, which may support output of as many as 1 million EVs a year. I mean, literally, we're digging up the world's resources to make cars. I hope we all feel this is worth it. I hope this is all what we should be doing here. We're literally digging up what's left to make cars. In October, GM invested $69 million in Australia's Queensland Pacific Metals, a producer of nickel and cobalt. The moves are strategic bets to secure supplies that are getting increasingly sought after. And CEO Mary Barra said in an interview with Bloomberg Television in New York, quote, we'll continue to work with many people in the industry, especially in lithium and the other critical minerals. I think we'll be positioned to have a competitive advantage. Wow. So that is happening. And get this. Rio Tinto partners with BMW for low-carbon aluminum supply. This is Cecilia Jamazmi on mining.com. And so BMW is looking for low-carbon aluminum. And Rio Tinto, they think, may be able to help the mining giant. Rio Tinto has agreed to supply BMW with aluminum it produces in Canada using hydroelectric power 
in a move that will allow the German automaker to lower its carbon footprint. The companies, which announced the Memorandum of Understanding in separate statements, said the aluminum produced in Canada will go to BMW's production plant in Spartanburg, South Carolina, starting in 2024. While the partners did not indicate how much aluminum will be sent, they said the move could generate a reduction of up to 70% in CO2 emissions compared to BMW Group's benchmark for aluminum. And we have a quote from Joachim Post, BMW board member, Quote, by using innovative materials, we can reduce our vehicle's carbon footprint. The agreement to supply low-carbon aluminum is based on several pillars. In addition to hydroelectric power and secondary material, we also want to lead the automotive industry by ramping up our use of aluminum with no direct CO2 emissions from the smelting process. So I'm sure that's true, but I'd also say it's a very convenient way to say, look, we're getting CO2-free aluminum out of Canada. Rather than building that in Germany, we should build that in the U.S. because it's actually going to be a lot cheaper to get our CO2-free aluminum shipped there. So German government, don't be mad at us if we're building in the U.S. because we're doing it for the sake of the environment. Just speculation, but kind of fun to think about, isn't it? The companies have also agreed to work on deploying Rio Tinto's blockchain sustainability solution for aluminum called Start, launched in 2021. So this is back to the traceability of aluminum and of minerals for their provenance, as Ira Thomas called it, in reference to diamonds. And we have a quote from Rio Tinto Chief Commercial Officer Elf Berrios, who said in a statement, quote, As global demand for responsibly sourced materials continues to grow, automakers are increasingly looking to partner with suppliers who share their commitment to traceability and sustainability. Pretty fascinating. And remember Linus in Malaysia having issues with getting certified for production after July? Well, we have an update here, Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Minister signals Linus can run Malaysia unit if waste taken back. (laughs) So uh, Malaysia's science minister suggested Linus Rare Earths could keep its unit in the Southeast Asian nation if the Australian company ships out the radioactive waste. And we have a quote from Minister Chang Li Kang, who said in a tweet on Sunday, quote, if someone is willing to ship the low-risk radioactive waste, as claimed, out of our country, the government can consider retaining CNL plant in Gibang. Well, you know, it's hard to argue with that logic. This Chang Li Kang seems like a very skilled politician, don't they? Seemed like a very, very skilled politician. Earlier this week, Linus got its operating license for its Kwantan plant renewed for three years starting July 1st, but failed to get approval to keep running a unit that Malaysian authorities says generates radioactive waste. And Chang continues, No party has the right to continuously produce radioactive waste in our homeland. Chang Li Kang is an excellent politician, from my perspective, and I'm not talking about ideology here. I'm talking about very powerful, simple statements. I mean, who's not going to agree with that? No party has the right to continuously produce radioactive waste in our homeland. A piece of political brilliance out of Malaysia, continuing through the global south here, which increasingly our news is very much based on. Congo watchdog wants billions of dollars more from China infra deal. That's Bloomberg News via Mining.com. I assume they're talking about infrastructure. I've never seen that shortened to infra in a headline 
So a little surprised by Bloomberg there. The Democratic Republic of Congo's government watchdog called for a major overhaul of the country's $6.2 billion minerals for infrastructure deal with China after its investigations found significant breaches of the 2008 agreement. I think they're looking for breaches to renegotiate this thing. Congo hasn't been adequately compensated for the copper and cobalt reserves. It contributed to the venture, which undertook to finance $3 billion of infrastructure projects using the proceeds of mineral sales from a $3.2 billion mine, the General Inspectorate of Finance said. It called for the value of the investment in infrastructure to be increased to, quote, at least $20 billion in view of the value of the deposits transferred, end quote. So there will be some surcharges on that deal. While the mine is pumping out metal, the Chinese partners have only dispersed about $822 million of infrastructure funding over 14 years, the IGF said in a summary of its findings published on its website on February 15th. Quote, these works have remained, for the most part, without visible impact for the population. The watchdog also accused the Chinese companies of financial malfeasance, including transfer pricing and dumping, and called for them to be fined $100 million for breaching capital controls under the nation's mining code by not repatriating more than $2 billion in export revenue. So this is pretty interesting, isn't it? In a separate statement posted on Twitter, China's embassy in Congo defended the partnership and said the IGF report, quote, did not correspond to reality, cannot be considered credible, and has no constructive value. Well, I think negotiations are not going to go well here. Quote, the Chinese government encourages the Chinese companies to work with their Congolese partner to improve cooperation by providing more benefit to the Congolese party and resolve disagreements through friendly and reasonable dialogue. The embassy said it added that it would, quote, resolutely respond to any violation of the legitimate rights and interests of the Chinese companies. So, you know, resources and geopolitics continue, again, to be center stage here in the relationships between countries. Newcrest CEO says Ball in Newmont's camp in takeover talks, this is Bloomberg News via mining.com, Australian gold miner Newcrest Mining is, quote, worth a lot more, end quote, than the approximately $17 billion takeover bid made by U.S. rival Newmont, according to the company's interim chief executive officer. Quote, the company is not up for sale, and this was unsolicited, end quote. Sherry Dew said in an interview on Bloomberg, quote, we have offered Newmont limited conversations to share a bit more about where we see a value in the portfolio, and so obviously that's with them now to see if they'd like to decide to engage. Newcrest, earlier on Thursday, said it rejected the bid by Newmont, announced earlier this month, but indicated that it is prepared to provide access to limited, non-public information on a non-exclusive basis. And we have another quote from the interim CEO. Copper in particular in the portfolio is something that I would assume makes us very attractive to many people out there. The future for the metal is, quote, very bright. Yeah, as we'll see from Roberta Caselli, I mean, she was saying how Trafigura says there are only days of copper supplies when normally there are weeks. Think about that. Barrick CEO says inflation not over as costs weigh on results. Bloomberg News. So we see another miner is saying how inflation is reducing its profits. Barrick Gold's top executive says inflation is going to be sticking around to hobble the mining industry for a while longer. 
Despite expectations that the pace of inflation may start to ease as central banks ratchet up the costs of borrowing, Barrick's CEO Mark Bristos doesn't see enough to move the needle much. Quote, no one's doing anything to kill inflation, he said Wednesday in an interview at Bloomberg's Toronto office. Quote, it's definitely not over, end quote. And it's hard to disagree. I mean, if anything, again, we're seeing the, you know, a leg in inflation. If you thought it was bad before, now is when it seems to really be hitting. Earnings of the world's second largest gold miner were affected by higher inflation and lower production in 2022, as well as, quote, challenges at its turquoise-rich mine in Nevada, according to Brisso. Quote, we missed the guidance on cost, but we guided that we were going to be higher because the costs came at us quickly. Still, the CEO sees some bright spots on the cost front, including an easing of fuel expenses due to a drop in natural gas prices. Labor is still high, though Bristow said Barrick is, quote, in good shape on that front, in part because it uses U.S. dollars for much of its business, including for its African operations in Mali and the DRC. Quote, the current year is a year where we've got quite a bit of capital. We've got to invest in more mining fleets, and so that does impact on the cash flow. And a couple of headlines here. This is the Northern Miner. Igniko Eagle shares sink despite record gold production in 2022. And this is Jackson Chen at the Northern Miner. Igniko Eagle Mines delivered solid operating performance in a challenging cost and workforce environment during the fourth quarter and throughout 2022, with payable gold production of nearly 800,000 ounces and 3.1 million ounces in these periods, respectively. The company reported on Friday. That's pretty impressive. And we have a quote from Amar Al-Jundi, Agnico Eagle's president and CEO. From a safety and operational standpoint, 2022 was another strong year, and we had our best safety performance in our 66-year history. We met production forecasts and managed our costs in a highly inflationary environment. All in sustaining costs for the fourth quarter and full year of 2022 were $1,231 and $1,109, respectively. The higher quarterly unit costs were affected by the impact of inflationary pressures at the Nunavut and Catilla operations and lower production at La Ronde, Catilla, and Pinos Altos, according to the company. So there you have it. And finally, Tech Resources becomes Tech Metals as it spins off its coal unit. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year bond, and it is at 3.912%. That is 0.16 higher than last week. So we have seen a general climb in the last five weeks, and we are nearing that 4% 10-year bond again. Let me just check, before we continue here, how the UK bond, 3.63%. Remember when it was above 4% where, you know, is actually at 4.5% where all chaos started to break loose for the UK 10-year? Well, we're at 3.63. I mean, we're not that far. Looking at metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on February 21st, gold is trained at $1,836.40 per ounce. That is $23 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $21.88 per ounce. That is $0.08 cents lower 
than last week. Platinum is trading at $943.56 per ounce. That is $16 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,525.13 per ounce. That is $48 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.05 cents higher at $4.09 per pound. Aluminum is a penny lower at $1.09 per pound. Lead is unchanged at $0.95 cents per pound. Nickel is $0.80 cents lower at $11.77 per pound. Tin is also lower at $11.84 per pound. That is $0.66 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is at $15.88 per pound. That is $1.47 lower than last week. And zinc is unchanged at $1.41 per pound. And that in itself is interesting because the zinc market is reportedly tight and copper is reportedly tight. Those are two of only a few metals that are not going down here. The others being lead and aluminum is only a penny lower. Otherwise, everything else is lower. So pretty interesting there. And perhaps if you're trying to explain this, it sounds like the dollar is stronger in the last week or so. So perhaps that is what we're seeing here. Commodities, particularly gold, pull back and take a breather here. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Global X ETF commodity analyst Roberta Caselli, and she gives a fascinating interview on the dynamics behind the metals and energy markets as it stands. And perhaps, you know, most surprisingly for me, perhaps not for you, but for me, was this idea of the Chinese property sector playing this pivotal role in industrial metals. And she's saying, as we see it stabilize, this could add pressure to already low inventories in places like the LME and the COMEX. You know, levels, as she said, and as we've been seeing in Bloomberg, levels are at a record low. So a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome to the Northern Miner podcast for the very first time, Roberta Caselli, Commodities Analyst at Global X ETFs. Roberta, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Adrian. So it's been an interesting time as ever in the last, you know, two or three years in metals. One of the most pressing and, you know, dramatic issues that I see when I look at commodities in general particularly in the metals, is the question of inventories. And this idea, we've seen repeated reports out of Bloomberg of surprisingly low inventories on, say, the LME. Maybe we could start with that. What is your sense of inventories? Is this being over-dramatized or is this a serious cause for concern? Yeah, I definitely um, agree with, with this consideration. I, from my point of view, I noticed the same. And uh, I believe that, uh, yeah, since last year, as you were mentioning, the two different reasons we have noticed in the exchange inventories, uh, levels 
at record lows. Uh, so, um, for example, so I think something to underline it is very important is that exchange inventories. So, for example, as you mentioned, LME, uh, Shifi, and uh, Comex, for example, are not the entire uh, stories, but they are a good proxy. So, some of the inventories are more difficult to, to track. So, for example, the the inventories in China. But just looking at exchange um, inventories once, as you were saying, I think since last year we uh, witnessed to a drop, to a substantial drop in uh, in mainly industrial uh, metals uh, inventories, such as, for example, copper uh, and uh, and zinc. Too. Uh, so, for example, and I think that the, the reasons are, are different. So, I would say, for example, on uh, on the copper side, one reason could be the the strong demand linked to uh, the energy transition, looking uh, long term, or uh, now the China's reopening uh, narrative, but also supply disruption on the supply side, as we know in in uh, South America. While, for example, for other metals, reasons can be different. So, just thinking about uh, uh, zinc, uh, the, the production of, of zinc has been also affected but then uh, by the energy crisis that we witnessed in uh, in Europe because the production of zinc is very uh, energy intensive from that point of view. And so linking uh, my comment to your uh, consideration before, yes, I would say that is one factor that is very important and needs to be uh, taken in consideration because in the event of substantial uh, drawdowns, I think that we could see traders trying to re replenish their uh, their stocks and this could put further pressure on, on prices and eventually spikes in, in the sense that there are concerns about uh, shortages. And for example, just last quarter, Trafigura, uh, among other industrial leaders, world of copper inventories actually measured in uh, in days of consumptions rather than weeks of consumption it is the the typical measure now just i would say just in the last uh, in the last months we have seen that uh, metal inventories in the LME are still very uh, low but at the same time in china uh, due to uh, mainly the seasonality uh, linked to um, the new year lunar period linked to the holiday we have seen uh, strong uh, builds and these are mainly seasonal and i would say that now is important also to understand if we are going to see important draws because earlier or more quickly than expected uh, would be um, a confirmation that there is a strong rebound linked to uh, Chinese demand from metals. Fascinating. So just to clarify then, is what you're saying that you are starting to see the impact of uh, China's reopening or are you still kind of determining what that impact is? Yeah, I believe that we have already uh, seen, at least on pricing, uh, a big impact. So, for example, copper copper it just uh, in, in January, a seven-month months high, mainly linked to, to the sentiment on, on China's reopening. But yeah, on the fundamental side, I believe uh, the next weeks are going to be very important. One indicator, as I just said, is inventories. Uh, but on the other side, also the, the property sector is very important in order 
order to understand how the China's reopening is gonna impact uh, industrial metals demand. Now, just to take a step uh, back and trying to underline why uh, China is so important for industrial metals and, and mainly uh, copper if, if we take it as a, an industrial metals benchmark. So uh, I would um, underline here again that China actually um, accounts for more than half uh, of the copper global uh, consumption. And also the property uh, sector is, is key. Indeed, the, the construction uh, sector for, uh, for copper accounts for about 30% of uh, total copper and use. So we know that now, um, lately, uh, China provided a large property sector uh, rescue package. And just last week, for example, came out the news that China's home prices steadied in January, uh, ending a 16-month decline. So I believe that stabilizing home prices is already an important uh, factor for, uh, for boosting buyers' confidence uh, in new properties. And so, yeah, I would say that uh, understanding if the property sector could, again, recover to last year uh, levels is one of the key questions for industrial metals uh, going forward. And when you say property prices and just property development, are you talking about China or are you talking globally? I'm talking now specifically about China, but of course the end use is not about China, but China I would say is, is, the, is the most uh, relevant uh, factor for copper. Now, this whole story about copper is quite Fascinating. I mean, when you say Trefigura says there are only days of consumption, to me, that's a bit of a someone waving a red flag here, but it sounds like it's still in equilibrium. And maybe I'm asking you to speculate a little bit before we move on to other metals here. But what happens if there's not enough copper? Like, I guess the price goes up and more copper shows up, right? Or, or not? Yeah, I mean, the dynamic is, is mainly what you just described. Of course, it's important to take in consideration the lead times, the most of all are that are actually uh, long. So if you think about uh, greenfield projects, that takes around 10 years to, to be implemented, uh, while uh, brownfield projects that are the ones already initiated can take uh, less. But in general, in order to uh, supply, to, to ramp up, of course, it takes time. Now, in regards to the production for this year, it is expected to increase basically following this inventory situation and also to uh, to, to face demand. Uh, but again, there are still disruption risks on the supply side, mainly in, uh, in Chile and uh, in Peru. Uh, we heard uh, news about uh, Las Bambas copper mine in Peru reducing, uh, so um, actually operating at reduced capacity. First quantum is also something, uh, the decision to uh, halt production is something that we are closely uh, monitoring uh, now because, again, uh, could uh, further exacerbate this price dynamic on uh, risk of so shortage. So I would say uh, one of the main effects would be actually uh, more volatility and, of course, the first until supply comes up one of the first reactions is going to be higher, I believe, is going to be higher prices. Right. And do you actually have a formal outlook on that that you have over there at Global X ETFs? Like, do you project into the future at all or or not? 
We focus more on supply and demand forecasts rather than a specific price forecast. So I would say we look at, for example, uh, the demand expectation from the International Energy Agency that according to uh, the energy uh, transition demand for uh, for copper, basically uh, the the demand coming from clean energy and uh, power grid and electric vehicles translates in, uh, in copper demand expecting to double by 2000. 30, so we take that in consideration. Also on the supply side, as we were, uh, as I was saying, uh, there are uh, flags on um, potential supply shortage. And for example, one of the uh, estimates I, I keep in mind is the one that Glencore mentioned just uh, a few months ago of a uh, 50 million ton supply shortage by 2030. So our approach is more uh, longer term. And so rather than just focusing on uh, um, cycles that are linked to macroeconomics and China's reopening more in the short term, we are uh, focusing on the potential of a super cycle uh, looking more uh, long term in the next 10 years that we believe is linked to uh, the mainly the clean, in, the clean energy transition and, as we were saying, the lagging supply investment. Okay, fascinating. So you are a proponent or you guys generally agree with this idea that we are entering a super cycle? Uh, Yes. Okay, excellent. Fascinating. Now, just before we move on from industrial metals, I don't know, I assume you saw that story that was maybe a week or two ago on this kind of weird situation with zinc. I think that was at the LME. Do you have anything to say about that or where they kind of ran out of like short term supply and this sort of thing and the price spiked on like 24 hours zinc? Was that just a market machination of some kind or was that kind of a clue, you know, into it sounds like it's a very tight market over in zinc. I mean, you were mentioning it before. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I believe uh, one of the main reasons of uh, the tightness uh, in, uh, in zinc at the moment is a consequence of what we have witnessed this last year on the, the energy crisis and the spike of the energy crisis. And the reason I say that is uh, mainly because the production of, uh, of zinc is very energy uh, intensive. So, of course, energy uh, a spike in energy prices, as we have seen last year, uh, actually uh, translated in uh, in whole in production and many smelters in Europe, for example, decided to suspend production and the inventories especially in uh, in the LME, of course, the low level of debt is a reflection of it. So um, I believe that is a logical uh, consequence of what we have seen and the announcements we have seen too. Interesting. And since you follow this, I mean, energy prices have since come down somewhat in Europe. So are you seeing you know, the production of zinc then or just these smelters restart or are they still, you know, basically maybe it's still too expensive, even though the prices have dropped. Like, are you getting a sense that the smelters are restarting or not? Yes. And I would say, yeah, at the moment, the markets still look very tight. And for example, just looking at the forward curve, the market remains in a, in a backwardation and still signaling uh, insufficient short-term supply. But I believe that looking at the energy prices now and and the, the considerations you were just mentioning that at, at the moment, actually, we are witnessing low energy prices, I expect um, matters reopening. Okay, fascinating. Now, on this whole energy situation, I, I have a few questions for you. And of course, 
uranium and oil, I'm not sure which we should tackle first, but maybe since uranium is considered a metal, let's start with uranium. What are you seeing with uranium? I mean, people have been excited about this investment as long as I've actually been investing since 2010. And just, you know, maybe in the last two or three years, we've started to see some significant movement. Uh, what is your sense of the uranium market when you look out into yeah. the big world? I agree with you, and I, th I think that at the moment uh, there is a lot of attention in uh, uranium and nuclear energy. So, as you were saying, uranium is a metal, is actually hard, a metal that enables uh, nuclear reactors to generate uh, electricity, so it's the fuel of a nuclear reactor. And I think now the interest in, uh, in nuclear power is mainly growing for um, a couple of reasons. So first of all, the interest is linked to the energy transition. So in order to reduce carbon emissions, but also linked to the energy security narrative in order to find a dependable uh, energy source and also to meet expanding energy uh, energy demand. And this is mainly because uranium is a clean source of energy. It is very dependable, having uh, the highest one of the highest capacity factors among energy uh, sources and is also cost effective. And I think looking um, shorter term, I believe also the uh, Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine uh, that altered the, the global energy uh, landscape is one of the main uh, uh, factors contributing to, to the interest in nuclear power too linking this to the energy uh, security uh, narrative. Indeed, uh, I think with Europe in an energy crisis, countries worldwide may also begin to, to stockpile uh, uranium for, for use as a, back, as a backup power source. And indeed, we have recently um, seen that uh, in December, the US Department of uh, Energy actually purchased 300,000, around 300,000 of uh, uranium in order to start this initiative of having strategic uranium reserve as we have strategic reserves of other energy sources. But looking uh, like beyond this, this current uh, crisis, the US Inflation Reduction Act and the European Green Taxonomy actually positioned just last year, actually, uh, the, the uranium as a climate change um, solution. And of course, considering the, the the nuclear, that uranium is the fuel to produce nuclear power, this would encourage um, investment in uh, in uranium too. And actually, another uh, strong uh, statistic that I keep in mind is the one coming from the International Energy Agency that uh, looking at the net zero emissions goals from uh, countries estimated that the nuclear sector must double in size over the next two decades in order to reach those net zero emissions goals. So the, the investment thesis for uranium is very strong and many countries, we have seen so many countries' announcements lately, and I think the one coming from Japan is the most emblematic, also from a, a sentiment point of view, because after 10 years of after the Fukushima disaster, now Japan, there is a shift back to nuclear, and now Japan decided to again invest in new technology and restart idled uh, reactors. And as I was saying before, I believe the main three reasons reasons for that is that there is a high um, efficiency of production of energy. If you think about the, the energy produced by nuclear fission is actually hundreds of times greater than energy produced by burning the same quantity of fossil fuels. And as I was saying before, it is cleaner and also stable. So that's why I think it's starting to become increasingly important and part of the world's energy mix together with renewables. And tell me, 
Do you know who the biggest buyers of uranium are as it stands, say, in the last few months? Do you know that information? So what I would say uh, is that we are tracking on the demand side, which are the main players. And so far uh, in the nuclear sector, say Europe and US are the main players in terms of nuclear capacity. So for example, Europe accounts for 25%, while US around 19%. But looking forward, is important when looking at these markets also to take in consideration the timing of, of demand coming from new reactors. So looking forward, we, we see uh, Asia to be one to become one of the main players and mainly uh, China. China is one of the uh, most ambitious plants. So its plan is basically to construct the reactors uh, planned are around 150 in less than two uh, decades. And so on a quarterly basis, we monitor the different phases of uh, reactors. So the ones that are uh, operating. Uh, so to give you an idea, in China is around 50, the ones under construction the ones planned. And so looking at the plan uh, is also important to understand the demand going forward. Interesting. And quickly, do you have a idea of when you're going to see the biggest sort of demand meet the shortest supply, when things are going to get at their tightest? Do you guys have a sense of that? The sense that we have now is that already this year, next year, there is a moment where falling inventories and falling secondary supply uh, is basically facing uh, higher demand. So this is where we uh, envision the deficit to be the, the biggest, I would say, and also because the construction of nuclear reactors takes time is something that uh, we could uh, see also in, in, in the next year. So, so I would say at the moment, the deficit is uh, linked to new demand, but it's also linked to supply that needs to come up again and new investments on, uh, on, on this side too. Okay, excellent. Now, turning to oil, I mean, oil is such an, you know, contentious market. I mean, there's a lot of people saying they expect it to go down. And there's a lot of people who say it's very tight. And look at the, you know, the US is releasing more from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, what's your sense of the oil market? Uh, it seems tight to me. I mean, but I'm just someone who reads the news. I mean, what's your sense? Yeah, I believe that these different uh, views are actually uh, justified by the, the several factors at play at the moment. And of course, one of the, the main uh, factors is again China's uh, reopening. Uh, and indeed, um, there is the expectation of a recording demand from China uh, this year. But the hopes for a rise in Chinese demand for oil needs to be uh, weighed against uh, growing US supplies and also worries about uh, a slowdown. For example, just last uh, week, we have also seen the news about the release again of uh, 26 million barrels of uh, crude oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve from the US, while we expected a different policy this year. Actually, uh, we expected uh, the, the SPR to, to be uh, replenished rather than again being uh, released. And again, also from a macroeconomic point of view, it's, it's very important to understand how the central bank, uh, the, the Fed is going to, to, to continue its policy, if there is going to be a Fed's pause in uh, its hawkish monetary policy, or if we need to wait uh, more. But I would say overall, I agree with your, uh, with your view uh, of 
market still uh, still tight. And I also think that the, the conflict, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine are going to continue to impact energy, uh, energy markets. So, for example, we knew that Russia was the world's second largest oil exporting nation, uh, making up almost 10% uh, of global oil supply. And, and we, we know already that uh, already in January, uh, Russia saw a 46% uh, drop in, uh, in oil and gas income. And also we have seen that, uh, again, Russia announced the first time that uh, an oil output uh, cut in order to, that there was a kind of response to uh, the restrictions in place. So we envision that there are still su supply, strong supply risks. Uh, not only linked to, to Russia, but also to OPEC Plus that doesn't seem willing to increase production to compensate for, uh, for this gap. So weighing these supply risks, even though we are witnessing uh, growing U.S. supplies against China's reopening, I believe uh, the, the market is still, uh, is still tight. And also on China's reopening, uh, it's very important to underline that uh, signs of revival in mobility are already visible. And for example, uh, there was a significant increase in domestic flights during the uh, Lunar New Year and also the traffic in the main cities uh, search after the holidays. So yeah, there are uh, different factors in play and it's important to, to understand which are the, the weights to, to link to them. Well, you know, I tell my friends, you know, buy your plane tickets now because I'm already <laughs> seeing, you know, the prices for flights here in Europe have, you know, come yeah, up and exactly. I'm sure there's <laughs> many, you've probably seen it too, right? Yes. Airbnbs <laughs> are expensive, you know, it's everything's going through the roof. If I could just get a very quick follow-up on oil long-term? Like, do you see it ultimately as a fairly tight market in the long-term or is it too early to say? So in long-term, uh, it depends what we uh, mean with, with long. It's true that if we look at the next couple of decades uh, or even more, we know that we're going against a not favorable regulation, I would say, and a lot of attention is on uh, renewables and the shift in, uh, in energy markets. But I would say looking at um, shorter uh, term and also looking at the um the timing of the transition, uh, I wouldn't um, envision this shift to happen suddenly, I would say. And I still see room to, uh, to, to continue to invest, for example, also on the US side. Indeed, for example, next year, also the International Energy Agency expects a record in, uh, in the amount of oil and gas production coming from uh, the US. Okay, very interesting. So just wrapping up then on gold, what is your sense of the gold market? I mean, people are starting to get, generally speaking, pretty bullish thinking that this is going to be a good year for gold. You know, we hear of like pretty interesting stories in the last six months, let's say, of central bank buying. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the gold market and where we are with fundamentals? Yeah, definitely. So I would say that uh, gold uh, price moves in, in the last uh, months have been, of course, linked to the Fed's monetary policy and the slowdown now of uh, the potential pause and, and the slowdown that we have uh, just witnessing of its tightening cycle. And of course, the main reason of that is that gold is a yield-free asset. And as we have seen last year, rising real treasury rates increase the opportunity cost of holding gold. Uh, 
gold and can reduce gold investment appeal. Now that we expect a slowdown in the in a less hawkish path for for Fed, that could suggest real rates and US dollar to to lose some ground, and so this could uh, support a case for gold to uh, break out um, higher. Just in the last few days, though, we have seen that economic data was hotter than expected, and that dashed a little bit the hopes of uh, the fast tightening cycle. And I've also seen that, for example, there are now again rumors of a bigger than expecting rate hike in, in the March meeting. But looking at the next uh, year, in general, I uh, I believe there is a case to to go to break out higher, mainly linked to uh, the narrative of uh, a Fed's pause. But as you were mentioning, there is also another point to uh, consider that is linked to the uh, central bank's demand for uh, for gold. And this is linked mainly to um, geopolitical uh, unrest that continues to encourage central banks to buy uh, gold. And I would say also looking historically, gold, yes, is trading uh, the correlation uh, of gold to real rates and, and dollar is very strong and is the, I would say, one of the main uh, factors that influence gold. But uh, on the other side, also geopolitical tensions and uh, the possibility of persistent inflationary pressure also uh, support gold. Okay. And finally, just in terms of the inventories, do you have any sense of gold's inventory levels? Are they normal? Are they below normal? Are they you know, very tight or are they, is there plenty of gold in stock? What we have seen and for gold uh, and, and silver too, actually, is that COMEX inventories and uh, the London Bullion Market Association inventories have dropped uh, quickly last year. And one of the reasons I can think of is, as I was saying, central banks buying in regards to gold, while for silver, we have seen um, high imports from uh, coming from uh, India that could be uh, linked to um, to the solar panels uh, investments. Um, so yeah, uh, actually, uh, the, we have witnessed to a quick drop in, in both. Okay, that is fascinating. So, Roberta Caselli, thank you for joining me on the Northern Miner podcast today. And if people want to learn more about Global X ETFs and yourself, uh, where should they go? The best source, I would say, is our um, website, so globalxetfs.com. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you again, Roberta, for the fascinating interview. It's wonderful to meet you, and I hope to meet you again on this program. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Well, thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that fascinating interview with Roberta Kselly. We're definitely going to have her back on. Totally interesting. You know, people who are studying the fundamentals, you know, actually looking at the supply and demand and the actual how much is out there and actually being able to give a good answer. on that. That's real information, folks. That's real knowledge. And we're happy to bring it to you. Coming up tomorrow, again, is the Global Mining Symposium. Just go to events.northernminer.com to register your interest. If you want to help out the podcast, you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.